open source project that becomes popular, well, uh, uh, after a while, they become so popular that they become um, a victim of their own success. And it's at that point that funding becomes essential. Hello and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Uh, today we have Aslak Hellasoy, creative cucumber, and one of my colleagues, and another of my colleagues, Dermot Caniff, who works with uh, Smart Bear out of the Galway office. And the topic of the conversation are uh, the financial risks of open source software. Now, this uh, this is a really important topic. It was brought up on a discussion on the Cucumber Slack a while ago, um, uh, and I think Aslak It'd be really good if you could give us some context to where you see the risks or, or, or why we're here talking about risks of financial, the financial risk of open source software. Yeah, um, it, I guess um, the idea for this podcast came when somebody asked in, in Slack a question that has been asked many, many times, either in Slack or in, in the GitHub issue trackers. Uh, for Cucumber, um, and it happens for any other open source project. And the question is, when can I expect this bug to be fixed? Or, or was it, when can I expect this feature to be implemented? Um, and when I sort of, <laughs> it always annoys me when people ask that question. Um, I'm sure so... you never let them know that, though, <laughs> Um, so sometimes I'll just ignore people. Sometimes I'll just say we don't do we don't do ETAs, you know, estimated time of time of arrival. Uh, but I, f- I figured it you know, because people ask it over and over again. I thought it might be interesting to try and and and, and explain what the risks are with uh, with open source because uh, I think the people who ask that question don't don't really understand what the risks are. I mean, do you think um, that they have a different expectation from an open source project than they would do uh, if they were dealing with, you know, a, a commercial product? I think I think uh, a fair amount of people have the same expectation from an open source project as they do from a commercial uh, project or product, and I think that's where the disconnect happens. You can't expect the same thing from an open source product uh, as you can expect from a commercially backed one. Now there are, as we'll, I guess we'll talk about, you know, you, you, it can be both commercially backed and open source, but um, for most open source products out there, you really can't expect anything. And I think that's, that's what people need to understand. Can you remember what motivated you to create Cucumber in the first place as an open source product? Well, I was just scratching my own itch, really. I um, I wanted to have a tool that allowed people to write down the requirements that I could then turn into a, a test so I could do test-driven development or behavior-driven development. And it didn't exist. Well, there were some tools that existed, but you know, they had um, various flaws and were immature, so I said to myself, hey, I might, I might as well just create my own then. Um, so it was, it was very egotistical. <clears throat> I, I didn't really want to create it for a lot of other people. I, I did it for me <laughs> and, and my project. You know, my, I, I, was, I was working 
um, I was building some commercial uh, software for a customer, but I wanted to have this tool, so I created it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm sure a lot, a lot of open source software projects start off in a similar way. Um, but when you were, for instance, when you were creating Cucumber, did Cucumber make use of any open source projects of itself? Oh yes, um, loads. I guess you know source control was um, in. I think it was in Subversion or was it Git? I can't remember. But you know the source control was open source. Um, I used probably RSpec, which you know, which is another testing tool or TDD tool. I used. Uh, a parser to parse the Gherkin files, which was open source, and I'm sure a few other things. So yeah, it was built on top of open source itself. Yeah, and I found bugs in it. I found I found bugs in those things as I was building uh, Cucumber. I'm not saying that because I remember it, but I always do when I use it. Absolutely, something. yeah. But um, if you didn't if you didn't make use of those products, how much harder would it have been to create Cucumber to start with? Ooh, um, I think a lot harder. I think a lot harder because there was a lot of very basic building blocks that I would have had to build myself, right? And so I, I would. It's like, yeah, it, it would have. I probably wouldn't even have started. Yeah, that's so. That's probably it, isn't it? The open source software is. Is has taken off because it makes life so much easier when you're trying to do um, something quite complicated or more advanced because it provides a lot of the building blocks for it and, and it's free so it's really easy. Um, but what then you get there, then you know there there, are, there may be some issues with it, but you really you you really have to um, expect to uh, expect a more uh, not so much of a support culture where because you haven't paid for it, so you have to fix them yourselves. Um, apart from getting that sort of extra that that lift up and getting accelerated at the beginning uh, with free products, are, are there any other benefits to open source software that that come to mind? Um, other than other than it being free for the consumer. Um, yeah, I think I think there are some other very interesting benefits. One is um, if there is a bug in a software, and all software has bugs, you can uh, you can find that bug yourself because you have the right exactly. So so you can you know you can um, you can open open the software that you think is buggy and and try and find out where the bug is. So you can you can identify and locate the bug. Um, and and because the source is well, the fact that it's open source allows you to do that. Now you can also fix the bug yourself um, by making a copy of it or a fork, um, and and use your own modified version of the software until uh, your fix has been uh, merged back into the you know official release of the product. So um, and that removes a bottleneck. If I were using a commercial tool and I found a bug, I would just have to wait until someone else fixes it. And that can take 
you know, days, weeks, months, years. So I think it remove it, 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 yeah, it just makes you go quicker. Of course, it then isn't quite as free as it was before because you've essentially vested your time in finding those defects. Yeah, but it wasn't free before either, um, because someone else paid for it. Well, it was free to it was free to the consumer. It was free to the consumer, but it wasn't free for the for the for the people who created it. They, you know, they they paid for it with their own time. Um, but it was free for the consumer because there's no financial transaction between the producer and the consumer. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, blood, sweat, and tears has gone into it at some point whether it's the consumer or somebody else, but somewhere somebody has paid for it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we've got, we can, I mean, it's clear that what the benefits of open source software are for getting, getting your product up off the ground because you, you have, um, you've got a head start stuff that you don't have to write yourself. And it's, it's clear that if you do come across problems using open source software, that gives you uh, some avenues to go and, identify the problem and fix it yourself if if that's if you feel so minded uh and if you have the skills and if you have the skills yeah can you think of any are there any other benefits that that we should consider before we start thinking about the the risks and the problems well i guess um when something's open source um as we mentioned it lowers the barrier for loads and loads of people to start using it and that also generates a lot of uh, discussions that usually happen in the open. So there's a, there's a huge knowledge base around the software, which is also free um, in the form of Stack Overflow, questions and answers, forum posts and blog posts and so on. So another benefit is that it can become easier to learn just because of the open knowledge sharing. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good point. When I think back over the past few months, as well, years even, has been quite an effort uh, in cucumber uh, ecosystem to keep the cucumber documentation up to date, or rather update it to keep it in sync with the way cucumber has been evolving. That itself has been a fairly major effort from the community. Yeah, and I think that I think there's a point in uh, in the life of a of a successful open source project where the the effort that goes into keeping up documentation up to date surpasses the effort going into creating the software itself okay that's an interesting thought let's let's hold that thought um what what about the risks of using open source software i mean so obviously it's free uh, to the consumer it gives you some advantages it allows you to fix defects but we wouldn't be here if there weren't some significant uh, risks as well. Well, the, the risks are that you can't, you, you have no rights as a consumer. You have no rights whatsoever. And you know, it, says, it says so in, in, in the license, but most people don't bother to read, read the license, whether it's an MIT license or... Uh, or GPL or BSD or Apache or whatever it says there, um, you have no rights. And that also means you, you can't sue anyone for it, but also you can't expect, you don't have no rights to demand 
anything to be fixed. You know, you can't you can't demand bug fixes. You can't demand new features. You're on your own, and that's and that's a risk. And I think that's a risk that too many uh, developers and organizations ignore. And when you and when there is a significant risk that you ignore, that's when things become a bit risk. Well, <laughs> dangerous. Yeah. So um, do you when you uh pick up a, someone else's open source project to incorporate into something that you're doing. Do you have a sort of a set of heuristics or a checklist of things that you are looking for before you have confidence that it's a, those risks are minimized? Um, yeah, I do. I, um, I look at how, well, basically I look at how active the, the project is. Um, there's many different ways you can assess that. You can, you can look at how quickly um, bugs are fixed. You can look at how many open bugs there are. You can look at how many different people are contributing to the code base on a regular basis. You can look at the download numbers. Um, you can look at things like Google Trends. Um, but, but it boils down to you know how, how active is is the project. It's a bit like the that the advice that your financial advisor is supposed to give you that um, just because the stock is performing well today, it doesn't mean it'll be performing well tomorrow. Yeah, exactly, and um, and I think that that happens quite often to open source projects. They will be performing, you know, you you pick it because you 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 think it performs well now, but then you you kind of need to keep an eye on it um, because now you've made you've made an investment now. You've, 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 uh, you've, and you're in the investment that you've made is that you're building your own software on top of it. Um, and, but if that underlying uh, asset, oh, I love using all these um, finance metaphors, uh, depreciates, then your own investment is at risk. So, um, so another thing that I look at is when I decide whether or not to depend on an open source project is um, if this project stops being active, is it something that I think I could with uh, that I think I could uh, start maintaining myself? And I don't mean maintain for everyone else out there, but fix my own bugs. If 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 the if the community around it dies, will I be able to fix um, the bugs that I'm likely to encounter? And and to assess that, I need to look. You know, what language is it written in? Is it is it a language that I even know? Um, is is the code? Um, does it, you know is the code quality good? Does it have tests? That kind of stuff. Um, and if I find that it's a language I don't know, or uh, if it doesn't have any tests, that's a big red flag for me because that means. It's going to be very, very difficult for me to 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 maintain this if if the community disappears. Yeah. So I mean, I'm thinking of an example from Cucumber for Java. The, there was a library that we were using. Is it called Xtreme? Yeah, Xtreme. Yeah. So that just kind of stopped being maintained, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Because well, I I know I know the author of that library really well, Joe Walls. Um, yeah, he just uh, he just lost interest and um, I stopped maintaining it. And that was something that 
had high code quality uh, and it was written in a language that, that I knew. Um, but, and I think, I can't remember exactly, well, the, yeah, I, you know, we could, we could have gone in and, and, and start, started to maintain that ourselves. Um, but we made we made a different choice. We decided to replace it with uh, with something else. And that's, I guess, a, a thought process that everyone needs to be uh, aware of if they start to use open source software. I mean, I guess another at the other end of um, having everybody, all the, the developers of a piece of software disappear. There's the opposite where they're so active on it and they keep on making changes and doing major releases and breaking changes that keeping up to uh, keeping your piece of software up to date with the, the latest release of this open source um, uh, framework can be a challenge. Yeah, definitely. If, if, if they are moving faster than you are, uh, that can be a problem. Um, I think uh, one thing that's important when you, when you depend on other libraries, and I guess all software does, unless unless it's very special kind of software, uh, is to regularly upgrade to the latest version of anything you, that you're depending on. And by regularly, I mean, you know, once, once a week, once a month, uh, but not let it take longer than that. Because um, if you just stay at the version you're on and don't upgrade regularly, that the, the cost of upgrading to the latest versions is going to be, well, it's going to, it's going to grow exponentially. And, um, and it might become so costly to upgrade that you stop doing it, but now you're stuck on a version that is no longer maintained, even if uh, it is a popular open source project, because open source projects, they tend to only really maintain the latest version and they don't really care about the old ones. Yeah, so that's, that's a really interesting area, isn't it? Um, my, my colleague Gary Fleming has been doing some work over the past year on having upgrades uh, be part of the automatic build process, so part of the build pipeline, upgrades things to the latest version and then sees whether it breaks uh, and lets you know, um, rather than waiting for you to to actively go, oh, let's see what, what's, what needs upgrade updated. It actually uh, yeah, it actively notifies you if there's been an update that breaks your product. Yeah, and you, you you get this that that's also automated in in GitHub now. Um, there's various bots that will look at your um, look at your manifest files, you, you know your your poms or your package JSONs or your gem files or whatever, and and, and try to upgrade and um, uh, make that job a little bit easier for you. Yeah, notice that for for certain Maven based or Node based projects that I've been keeping a tab on on GitHub is that you you do get this notification, which it's great but one wonders how instrumented it, it gets, how deeply into the application it's going to flag any issues. So um, I like to kind of go in and figure out what version am I on, what's the latest and greatest, how much effort is it going to take to bring myself up to there, and how much dependent version-dependent code have I got in my own code base, which, you know, it's a movable feast. That's for sure. Yeah, obviously you've got wonderful test suites and they'll let you know if any changes have actually broken the behavior of your application. But that, I believe, is another topic. Um, maybe we should think about, you know, we've, we've talked about these risks, um, 
nothing that we do in the world is risk-free, but what we need to do is, uh, you know, people need to be uh, aware of the risks. And as like you've talked about a few of the things that you look at when you start using an open source piece of software. Um, but there's also ways of mitigating those risks. So, um, you know, how, what have, can you think of any examples of what open source projects have offered to try and mitigate the risks uh, that, that there are for um, people using them? So I, I'm thinking about, are there, are there um, open source projects that provide support contracts, for instance, or that provide consultancy or training and helping you fix things? Yeah, so the, well, the underlying, before I answer the question, I just want to briefly mention what the underlying problem is. Um, most open source software out there is created by uh, people in their spare time who just have a, a, an itch to scratch. And then it turns out that many people had the same itch and the, 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 the project or the product becomes very popular and attracts a lot of users. And when you have a lot of users, they, they ask for a lot of new features and they find a lot of bugs and, and so on. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the group of people or maybe the individual who created the software finds themselves overwhelmed uh, because what started out as a little you know, hobby thing that they could spend uh, an hour or two in the evenings to do now has become a huge time sink that nobody pays for. Uh, and so um, when, when an open source product becomes really popular, it is no longer sustainable from, on a, from a financial perspective for, for the maintainers to, to maintain it. Um, because they would have to spend their entire time, um, they would have to, you know, they have to spend their entire day working on that product, which obviously they, they can't afford to do unless somebody's paying them for it. Um, and that's when they burn out and just say, um, "So long," and you know, I'm, I'm tired of this. So, what can we do to mitigate this? Um, it's a, it's a funding problem. Um, I think. Well, somebody has to start paying the the people who are who are maintaining the software, and I've seen two models um, that work for that. One is a sort of crowdfunding model where um, a proportion of the, the the consumers of the software chip in. You know, they they donate some money. Um, there are some open source products who managed to do that. Very successfully, I think uh, Webpack is probably the most successful one. They they managed to raise, oh, uh, I think yeah, hundreds of thousands of, of dollars uh, just by soliciting a little bit of, of donation from from the people who are using it. Um, this is this isn't easy to do. You need to build the right kind of community around it, but it works for works for some some products. The other, the other model is to have um, a corporate entity that, that sponsors it. Um, there's been, um, you know, that, that happened uh, with Linux, uh, probably one of the first um, software projects that happened for, you know, companies like Red Hat. Um, they would start providing commercial support for Linux. Um, and now this is a fairly common model, MongoDB, for example, and SmartBear, 
who recently um, bought Cucumber and also bought other open source uh, products like, like Swagger, they start offering um, financial support by basically hiring people to, to work full-time on open source pro, uh, projects. So th those are the, I think those are the two models. So, some, somehow the people who write the software has to be yeah. paid. So I mean, we've also so uh, I know that Cucumber uh, last year, maybe even the year before, started working with Open Collective for people to uh, give donations. Uh, there are company, there are open source projects that offer premium support contracts, I believe. So maybe a slightly different way of sponsoring um, or, or funding development. Yeah. So. Yeah, actually, that's the third um, third kind of that's a very new model um, um, where you have a third entity that um, that funds certain projects. Uh, one of those companies is called Tidelift. They uh, what 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 they're selling to to the consumers is reduced risk. So they will they will guarantee for certain handpicked projects that um, that there is a that there is a support level uh, for certain classes of, of features and bugs, meaning that companies can can pay for a subscription uh, at Tidelift, and then if they if they find a bug, Tidelift will guarantee that this bug gets fixed in a in a timely manner. Um, and the way they will do that is that they will pay developers to do this. Um, so there's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's sort of a mediator sitting between the producer and the consumer of the software that, that takes care of, of that financial backing. And I guess it's, it's the same thing as uh, open collective, but open collective collective doesn't offer any such guarantees. So how is that money rooted then? Is it based on a kind of bounty system? Is it somebody from, the open source community who ends up fixing the bug but gets some money for it or is it do they have like a core team of maintainers that are part of the the, the uh, revenue recipients um i'm not sure i think i think it might be a combination but um of you know it might be a combination who work for the company or, or freelancers i'm not entirely sure okay but the important i think the important thing is that it is it is a legal, it is a company that other companies can go to 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 pay for support um, when the the little open source community around whatever software they're paying for might not be able to offer that themselves. Gotcha. So I mean, in in the recent past, as people may know, Cucumber got acquired by SmartBear and. Now yourself and uh, another couple of people are working on on the open source project. And um, how how has that affected the number of uh, voluntary contributors and other ways of maintaining Cucumber? It's I don't have any I, I don't have any numbers on it, but it feels like. The, the amount of voluntary contributors has uh, remained about the same or perhaps gone up a bit. Um, and I, this is something that we were a bit worried about, you know, is are people going to be, people are going to be 
scared or annoyed now that there is a, um, a company paying for the, for the development and the maintenance of Cucumber? Well, it turns out no, because I work full-time on Cucumber now, and that's the first time in my life that I've been able to do that, which means that I can be much more responsive to, um, to the developer, developer community as well as the user community. So I, you know, I can offer better service. I can build, build a better product now, and I think that makes it easier for, for, for part-time contributors to, to also be part of the project. So it's, I, think, I think everybody wins with this kind of model. Consumers win, um, and and the um, and the people who create the software, whether they are paid full time or just uh, do it on a voluntary basis, it becomes easier for everyone. Sounds like a happy success story. I think so. Yeah, uh, it's certainly a lot less stressful for me. Um, yeah. So I mean, we should we should remind listeners that when. Uh, when you and Matt and Julian created uh, Cucumber Limited, there was uh, a business plan written on the back of a napkin, I believe, which which had uh, a flow from um, earning money from consultancy being fed back as an investment to the open source product. Uh, but it didn't kind of work out quite like that, if I remember rightly. Well, so... <laughs> What was our business plan again? Um, yeah, we want <laughs> we we want um, we wanted the open source product to to grow, and in order for it to grow, we needed to make money um, so that we could keep maintaining it. Um, how do you make money on open source? Well, you can you can build you can build a consulting business around it, or a training business around it, or you can build commercial. Uh, tooling around it, and, and you know we we tried both of those. Uh, the, the the training um, business worked well, uh, but we were so small that we couldn't scale up the. We didn't have capacity to build a successful commercial tooling around it, but um, we 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 kind of managed to get, to keep it going. But the problem was that we was we were we were so small that we were too busy making money that we didn't actually have all of that time to maintain uh, the open source project. Because when you're a small startup, um, it's, it's, your, your, it's your runway and, um, and the cash flow that, that matters. And it's really difficult to justify spending money on building an open source product, even if your entire business is, um, is built on top of it. it was, which takes us right back to the beginning, doesn't it? Of the, the fact that all software is paid for by somebody in some way, uh, and without without having a guaranteed uh, source of that input, it just rots on the vine, and you end up with those projects like Xtreme that are quality projects, but no one has the time or inclination to keep them alive. Yeah, and I think. Any open source pro pro project that becomes popular um, will, uh, uh, you know, after a while, they become so popular that they become um, a, a victim of their own success. And it's at that point that funding becomes essential. 
um, most little open source projects don't have this problem. You know, they 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 are they are small. They have a small user base. Um, most of the at least well, most most of the people who use it are able to fix their little bugs. You know, it's a happy little community. But once things grow out of proportion a bit, and you've got um, hundreds of thousands of users, only a small fraction of those people are going to give back to the community by, by maintaining. Um, and that's when, when things, that, that's when, when funding becomes essential. And that's when it becomes really risky to depend on those open source uh, products if the funding, if there, isn't, if there isn't a sustainable funding model in place. Yes, um, there's there's other broader problems. So um, I seem to recall that quite a lot of the uh, libraries that uh, Linux and other uh, operating systems depend on for our security and for time synchronization and so on and so forth are also essentially unfunded open source projects. Um, I, you know, to be honest, I don't really know much about how the how the Linux kernel is is developed and how it's funded. I mean, you sound like you know more about it yourself, Seb. <laughs> yeah, I, well, they have exactly the same problems, which is that, um, that there are some really critical libraries at the core that are used by millions of consumers and organizations. And there's, there's a very weak funding model. Um, sometimes uh, critical libraries are maintained by a single person who sometimes, well, eventually we all grow old and die um, and they, we have other uh, other priorities. So there, I think it's a, a broader thing than just um, commercial, in ju just the, the cucumber style libraries that sit on top of um, uh, operating systems that we use for everyday work. Even the underlying infrastructure is, is susceptible to these problems. Um, which is which is kind of concerning. I think one of the interesting things I'd like to ask, you know, we're getting close to time, but uh, since we launched Open Collective, uh, you started collecting um, donations. What would you say the the, the, the typical organisation was that donated to Open Collective for the cucumber? Is it is it your banks and your insurance companies, or is it um, your smaller startups and your individual um, individuals that are just interested in supporting the project there there are a couple of um of companies donating significant significantly more uh, money to to the cucumber open collective than others one of them is the principal financial group which have contributed four thousand um, dollars in in the past year which is amazing thanks principal financial group um, and another one is code first which have contributed two thousand dollars, and you know it would be amazing if more companies could donate. Perhaps not as much, but you know a few hundred. Uh, that would make a huge change, and it doesn't go to doesn't go to SmartBear, doesn't go to me. Uh, this money, all of this money, goes to our community out there who isn't normally paid to contribute to Cucumber. So it, it would just help increase the general um, health of the project in terms of bug fixes, documentation, whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's surprising that, it, well, it isn't surprising, but it's kind of disappointing that there isn't more companies 
uh, paying because it would reduce their risk. It would reduce their exposure. Um, Aslak, thank you very much for, um, for talking to us about this. It's been really interesting. Um, and yeah, if anyone uh, that's listening has got ideas about how to improve the, the funding stream for open source projects in general, I think that would be a great thing to, to have a discussion about uh, because it's clearly going to be, a, it's been a problem and it continues to be a problem. Um, Aslak, thank you. Dermot, thank you for joining us. Um, this, uh, this podcast will be posted in all the usual places, which will probably be exactly where you got it from. Thank you and goodbye. Well, thanks, Thank Ed. Thanks, David. Thanks.